We've been in, in a sermon series, walking through the Gospel of Luke, that we've subtitled The Invitation of Jesus. And we're looking at these familiar stories from the life of Jesus, asking the question, what is the invitation for us as the people of God who have made decisions to follow Jesus with our lives? We are disciples. He is our rabbi. He is the one who defines the path. And last week, it got crazy. Last week, we turned our eyes toward the cross And not just the cross as in the space where Jesus died, but the cross in what Jesus talked about before he died. Do you know Jesus talked about crosses several times before he took up his own? And his message was not, hey, I'm about to die for you. You don't need to worry about doing anything. His message was, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. There's a responsibility as we're united with Christ that we're sharing in his sufferings with him. And what we said last week, this is a tough line to stomach. Somebody else is getting calls. Wow, it's just busy time for everybody. Didn't know 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning could be so busy, guys. Um, here's what we said last week. The cro- do not disturb. Do not disturb. The cross is not just a location where Jesus died for you. The cross is your invitation to come and die with Jesus. That's what we said. Cross is not just a location where we go, this is my salvation. It is that. It is Jesus substituted for you, but it's also an invitation to come and die with him. And what we learned last week, this is a mind-blowing reality, is that this statement is not bad news. It's good news. Jesus is saying, come and die because it's the only pathway to life. The more you try to hold on to what you think is life, the more you find emptiness and death. But when you let go and take up your cross, you find the pathway that truly leads to life. So it's not take up your cross, this is so depressing, but we all got to suffer a little bit with Jesus. It's, hey, actually, if you try to take up what looks like life on the outside, you're going to find a cross. But if you take up the cross, you find a pathway to an empty tomb and not just everlasting life when you die, but the fullness of life right here and right now. And so we're keeping our eyes focused on the cross. This week, if you need a title, it's called The Aftermath of the Cross. And we're literally looking at Jesus physically dying today. If we're going to take up our cross and follow Jesus, we might want to look at how he died. And when I say how he died, I'm I'm not talking about being morbid. I'm not talking about the physical details of death. I'm talking about the attitude and the spirit that he took to the cross. Have you ever read the crucifixion narrative and just erased all your assumptions from the past about what you know about the cross and what you've heard 10,000 times or on every Easter you get reminded, like, have you ever thought about how much of a miracle it is that Jesus chose the attitude he chose as he gave his life on the cross? We're going to look at the explicit details of how Jesus died and we're going to ask this question, what does it mean for us? Because once again, and and if you missed last week, this sermon is really going to be incomplete without that one. You can't really get this one without that one. So please go back if you weren't here and make sure you've heard that one. But today we're going to look at what actually happened on the cross and what it means for our lives. Did you bring your Bible this early in the morning? If you have your Bible, hold it up. All of our locations, hold them up high, hold them up, hold them up, hold them up. Heading in to um, such an intense passage of scripture. I don't feel good about mixing that with a Bible drill for single people, but just want to acknowledge that you guys are out there and I love you and I'm with you. Turn with me to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, we had a college night this week and we just mentioned briefly last week, like, hey, we're going to be talking about, I don't know, dating and relationships. (laughs) 1,100 students showed up. (laughs) It was like, oh, wow. We we mentioned we're talking about that and all of you are here. So here's what's happening. I, I wish 
More sermons on our stage on Sundays could be about dating, but the reality is we have such a multi-generational group that even when we do preach on that, it's usually in a marriage series or some type of focus because we're not just a college ministry. We are a church that serves every generation. But what we're doing uh, for our college students is the next couple of Tuesday nights at 7 o'clock, the best Bible teacher on dating in the world, in my opinion, is Pastor Ben Stewart, who's out at uh, Passion City Church in D.C., and we're going to be tuning into his recent sermon series that he just did from Song of Songs about dating and marriage. So that's at seven o'clock the next couple of Tuesdays. If you're at another location and you're like, I really want to be there. I don't want to miss that. We will literally send you what we're going to be tuning into and all of y'all can process through that. So I just want to send that out there because I've been feeling increasingly burdened because I know people want direction. People want help. Sunday's not always the best space for that, but there are spaces. So Tuesday night, seven o'clock. Luke chapter 23. We're going to start in verse 33. And you need to take a second to prepare your mind and maybe even your body for what you're about to read. We're jumping in to the moment Jesus was nailed to the cross. It is good to read about the buildup and all that happened with his arrest and trial and the beatings that took place. But I want to hit on this moment because we are honing in on what spirit did Jesus choose to give his life with? Luke chapter 23, verse 33. It says, when they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. People stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, he saved others. Let him save himself if he is God's Messiah, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, Today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about noon, and darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. I hope and pray that the details of the passage we just read never become background noise to the soundtrack of our faith, just something we know about, just details we're familiar with. May we never grow numb or cold 
to the power of Jesus dying for us on the cross. If you are here today and you're at all new to this church or new to the Christian faith, you need to know that the details of this story we are reading in human history are the reason why we're doing what we're doing today. This is why I got up here and said, you can rest. God came to you. You don't have to get to him. This is why we exalt thee, Lord of all. This is why we're singing a thousand hallelujahs and a thousand more. This is what we're all about, that the son of God, the one who fashioned the earth, the one who made you, allowed nails to go through his arms and legs to hang and die on a Roman cross that the wrath of God may be satisfied and that sinful human beings like you and me can be reconciled to a right relationship with a holy God. This is what it's all about. May we never lose our wonder. May we never shut up about it. May we never stop worshiping in light of it. May we never stop holding on to it with all of our being. We need these reminders. And if you're new, you need the gospel to be preached into your life. This is the good news. The son of God gave his life for you and for me. But standing in awe and wonder is not the end game. It's the beginning of a journey. When the cross impacts your life and you truly understand on Calvary, this is what was going down for me. To the best of your ability, obviously eyes opened by the power of the Holy Spirit. It is good to stand in awe. It is good to admire the cross. But you need to understand because before Jesus died, he said, you're going to follow me and take up your cross and die to yourself. It's obvious that the cross was more than Jesus going, watch out, let me do this for you, and you just stand. It was Jesus paving, paving a pathway for you to participate in. He was defining how you and I are supposed to go about this life. And so last week I got up here and I put a cross on the screen, we'll put it back on the screen, and I put two words on each side and said, which one do you think of more, substitution or invitation? And we talked about, yes, Jesus on the cross. It is substitution, but it is also an invitation into more of God. I want to do something similar today. I want to ask this question. When you hear what you just heard from Luke chapter 23 and you read the details of the crucifixion, what is your response out of these two words? And for those listening on the podcast, once again, I will say this out loud, but it's better to take it in visually. What is your response to the account of the crucifixion in Luke chapter 23? You're just let it hit. Is it admiration or imitation? Admiration or imitation. It is good to admire and stand in awe of the cross of Jesus. But the reason why I preached the sermon I preached last week was to set up this moment and go, that's a starting place. But you do understand you're going with him there. The pathway of the Christian life runs through death. And the more we embrace the cross, the more we experience life. And so when you see Jesus on the cross, is it just your reaction to go, wow, thank you, I admire you, Jesus? Or do you also, in with that admiration, hear the invitation that says, emulate this behavior, emulate this mindset? 
Here's a better way of saying it as we have walkie-talkies going off live. It's just great. Lot, lot to get your mind off of the cross. Fix your eyes on the cross. Miles, I'm talking to myself. The way Jesus died, this is the whole sermon, is not just a moment to be admired. The way Jesus died is a model to be imitated. This is not just a moment for us to look back on for our entire lives and declare the greatness of it. That's huge. That's good. This is a model for us to feel the responsibility as disciples and go, I'm expected to live my life this way. I'm expected to read into how he's doing what he's doing and adopt something similar in my life personally. You're like, Miles, what do you mean by that? I mean, think about Jesus on the cross. What was happening in that narrative? It's interesting to consider how Jesus saved humanity because in saving humanity, he literally saves humanity by being passive, not active. He lets things happen to him. So it's not like Jesus achieved this physical feat of climbing a certain mountain somewhere and it's like, yes, we're saved. This is the end of every movie I've ever seen. This is awesome. This is Jesus allowing something to happen to him that he doesn't have to allow. He lays his life down. No one takes it from him. He's, he is giving his life away. And that's why when Jesus died on the cross, you hear the same objection to his behavior three different ways from three different groups. Did you notice, as he was on the cross, Jesus made three statements, but three statements were also made toward him. His statement was, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Could preach a million sermons about him saying that from the cross. His other statement to a criminal who's repenting of his sin in real time is, today you will be with me in paradise. That one could produce another million sermons. And then his last statement from Psalm 31, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And we know he said more than those three things. we got the other gospel accounts. But did you know Luke's account gives more of the words of Jesus on the cross than any of the other gospel accounts? And it's actually not that much. It's small compared to what's being shouted at him. Three different groups. First group, Jewish leadership. What do they say? This man claimed to be the Messiah. Many of them have been against Jesus the entire time, but the vast majority of them have been thrown off. They're devout and committed to the law. They can't believe he's healing on the Sabbath. They can't believe he's taking some of the steps he's taking and who he's eating with and how he's doing life. And now they're watching him die on the cross and all of their suspicions have been clarified. Okay, definitely not the Messiah. And in real time, they're going, if you are who you say you are, come on down. We saw you do miracles. Get off the cross. And they're not the only ones who have something to say. The Roman soldiers who are oppressing the Jewish people at the time join in They're reading the sign above Jesus' head that's written in multiple different languages. It simply reads, this is the king of the Jews. And the Romans are laughing. (laughs) This is their king. This is what happens to their king, their Messiah. I guess, okay, yeah, very small, minuscule God if this is their king. And then the criminal who's dying next to him joins in. and, And what's his objection? The same one. Why aren't you doing anything? Three different voices saying the same thing. Why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? Why don't you do something? And Jesus' choice in that moment is not to act, although he had the power to, but to allow. And I want to argue today that when Jesus allowed what was happening to him, he wasn't passively allowing something to happen. He was proactively transforming. Here's a better way to say it. He wasn't allowing the climate of what was happening around him to dictate the climate of what was happening within him. With perfect 
precise focus. He knew why he came, and he would not allow the voices and the objections of the crowd or the pain of the moment deter his focus from that. And I believe today that is our challenge from the cross. The challenge is, is your life dictated by the pressure that exists from all the voices around you? Or is there a peace and a connection, a union with God that defines how you live your life daily, that is undistracted by others? I'm asking the question, is your life more dictated by what happens to you today or what God spoke to you? Jesus is not allowing the most important moment of his life to be deterred by the voices and circumstances of the day. He is in perfect, humble submission to God. And I believe for us, the call of God from the cross is to speak into our tendency to just let our days be determined and dictated by what may or may not happen. And what Jesus is modeling for us is a spirit that is undeterred by that stuff and totally, humbly submitted to his Father. And you can transform relationships looking like that. It means in your relationships with people, what Gage was talking about, what, what, what was Paul's argument? Have the same attitude as Jesus, who did what? Became obedient to death, even death on a cross. His heart of humble service transformed the relationships around him. The cross changes how you go about marriage because now today in your marriage, your response is not, how's my spouse treating me and how are things going in my life? The cross invades that and says, you transform whatever energy comes against you with a humble submission to God and you become not a conduit of the energy around you, but a purifier and a filter to the world around you. See, you will either spend your life being a conduit of whatever's happening around you or a filter that's transforming the lost world around you. What do you mean a filter? I mean, what does a conduit do? It just carries the energy that comes to it. That's what most of you do. That's what I do most days. Whatever's happening out there, whatever's going on in my life, whatever's going on in my phone becomes what's going on in the inside of me, becomes the life that I live. And all we do is let hate get returned with hate, love get returned with love. Like, like we just bounce back whatever comes our way. But what's hitting Jesus in this moment, all this violence, all this hatred, all of this ridicule, is not hitting him and returning back in kind. It's hitting him, transforming within him, and he gives his life away in love. That's what mature Christians do. That's what we do to people who hurt us. That's how we handle circumstances that call us to suffer. It's no longer I am a victim of how things go out there. It is now my climate internally is getting set apart from all of this stuff so that I don't enter in and just participate in the world around me. I transform the world around me because the word within me has done that. This is the aftermath of the cross. Imitation, not just admiration. Now, everybody look up here. Do not miss this. Every location. Been waiting for this moment all week. This is the defining moment of the sermon today. Of all the sermons I have ever preached to you, what I just asked you to do from the word of God is the most impossible of anything I've ever asked you to do. Literally just looked at the cross and said, look at Jesus on the cross. Look how he's treating people. Look at his spirit. Look at his submission to God. 
that's how we should treat people and how we should live. If you're in here and you're at all following along with me so far in the sermon, you should be about to freak out, going, impossible. Highest bar ever set, never going to happen. Great ideal, think it's biblical, but not realistic. I'm, okay, yeah, wake up in the morning and imitate Jesus' attitude on Calvary. Great mission for the Christian life, not going to happen on a Tuesday. Like not going to happen with what's going on in my life. Thank you for the, for the high calling, thank you for the high bar, but I'm not going to be able to measure up to it. And listen to me, getting to the end of yourself and feeling that is exactly where you should be right now. When you hear the invitation of the cross being not just admiration, but imitation, do what Jesus did, you immediately should feel like, I can't, there's no way. You should be reaching for a source of strength that is outside of you to be able to live out this message. And good news, not only did Jesus walk out and model how to die well, but he also walked out and modeled how to prepare to die well. Jesus drew strength for Calvary from Gethsemane. Jesus' strength to not allow his inner world to be defined by his outer world came from a connection and a union with his father that empowered the focus and clarity that we saw on the cross. So I got news for, for Christology, which is what you understand about Jesus. We, we need to understand this. Jesus was not a robot. Jesus did not wake up the morning of the cross and go, oh, that's today, easy. Um, I didn't know, I'm the son of God. I've got all power. So all I gotta do is power through this and then it's everlasting life forever. It's gonna be. No problem. What, what time are we getting arrested? Like, uh, or what, what time is this actually going down? Because I had like some, okay, I'll move that. No, he's not a robot. He, you, gotta, you gotta take the God goggles off for a second and understand fully God and fully man means he experienced life as we experience it as human beings. He experienced fear. You don't believe that? You need to read the account of what actually happened the night before in Gethsemane. Jesus had to draw strength from another place. In fact, we're already in Luke chapter 23. Let's just go ahead and read it. Luke chapter 22, go back one chapter and go in verse 39. I wanna show you this. This is the night before the cross. Luke 22, verse 39, it says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. No gospel account shows Jesus getting alone with God more than the gospel of Luke. So at this point, he's getting to the end of his gospel, and he's like, Jesus went out as usual. He's always going out to go pray in a solitary place. This is one of his favorites, the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him, and what? strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. If you just run a compare and contrast of Jesus and the disciples the night before Jesus died and the day of, everything about this sermon will make perfect sense. What are the disciples doing the night before Jesus died? Sleeping, 
Because they're what? Exhausted from sorrow. Why? Because Jesus just talked to them for hours about what's about to happen. Read the book of John. John covers this discourse where Jesus is like, I'm about to leave. It's going to get bad. I'm going to die. I'm going to, things are good. Y'all are going to get all mixed up and you're going to have trouble in this world, but take heart. I've overcome the world. Like a, a lot of that has just hit them. Even when Jesus was giving that discourse, by the way, he stops at one point and says, there's so much more I want to say to you, but the spirit will come and help you. And Jesus just threw a lot at them. So they go away to pray and they're dead out asleep. Question. Who's more at peace and in clarity of mind the night before the cross, Jesus or the disciples? They're dead asleep. What's he doing? Sweating drops of blood in anguish, experiencing a level of inner anxiety that no matter what your issues are walking into this room, you have never felt the weight of what he's feeling in this moment. Sin of the world, wrath of God bearing down on him. And he's praying and he's in anguish and he's strengthened by angels. Now, compare that and then compare what they do the next day. Disciples, better rested, running for their lives, scared, missing out. All of them except John, by the way. We gotta give John some credit. He was there. The rest of them, you wanna know why John was there? Because he found his home resting against his rabbi. And that's what this message is all about. That wasn't planned. It was too early. But we'll come back to that later. <laughs> the disciples, perfectly asleep, turmoil, running for their lives the day of. Jesus' peace and clarity. I'm not going to return their hate with hate. I'm not going to respond. I'm going to transform their energy against me. He is not a machine. He's the son of man. Well, how did he get that strength? He got it the night before in loving union with his father. I'm saying there's a relationship between how much you numb yourself and distract yourself the night before a day that you spend in such crippling anxiety and fear. There's a relationship between what's happening alone with God and what happens in the public place in front of everybody else. And Jesus draws strength. That's his space to let out his anxieties. That's his space to process. That's his space to focus. That's where he literally fills himself up with the love of his father so that his life can be an offering for love and save the world. The model he's blazing, the path he's blazing for us is one that says, you gotta draw strength from the secret place so that in the public place, you're not dictated by whatever happens around you. You got to allow what I speak to you in private becomes your peace in public. And I want to argue today that we have to get there. We got to get to the secret place. We've got to get to the time alone with God that's actually filling us and not allowing our spirits to be dictated by everything else. And if you're following closely with everything I'm saying, you should be a little perplexed right now because you're going, the sermon about the cross is actually a sermon about my quiet time? Like what does imitating the cross have to do with getting alone with God? And I would argue it's the reason why the cross exists. We glossed over this when we read it earlier, waiting for this moment for you to feel the full weight of what was read about the death of Jesus. Go back to Luke 23 and read the end in verse 44. It says it was about noon Darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. So three hours of darkness for the sun stopped shining and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. 
Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he breathed his last. Go back up and look at that phrase. We got it underlined. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Do you see that? The moment Jesus gave his life, there was a curtain that was torn. What, just a random curtain decide to tear? Why is that significant? There were curtains in the tabernacle that led to deeper levels of God's presence. One of the main ones existed between where common people could go and where only the priests could go. The most holy place. The place where sins are paid for by sacrifice. You can't go there if you're sinful. Only he goes there to offer your sacrifice for your sins once a year. It says when Jesus died, the temple was torn in two. It means the symbolism of the death of Jesus is full access to God is now open for anyone and everyone who may come. The presence of God, not limited for a chosen few, certain race, certain group of Levites, certain group. No, 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 no. Anyone and everyone by grace through faith can come and commune with God. That's what the cross gave you. The cross gave you your greatest resource to draw strength from. God. Loving union with God. And not a relationship with God where he's waiting to sit down with you and iron out all the ways we need to work on this and get this better and make adjustments. But a space for you to reflect on his loving eye that is always on you in Christ Jesus. I heard somebody say that this morning as I was preparing for this sermon. It was like getting alone with God is about beholding his loving eye on you. Like, man, what Jesus accomplished on the cross was access we have to God. And I can just tell you from my life personally, there are two different versions of me. Okay, rarely will you hear a pastor get in front of his church and say, I'm leading a double life, guys. But I'm in front of you today going, there are two different versions of me. There's the me that has been alone with God and the me who hasn't. And they are very different people. Very different. If you've been walking with Jesus for any amount of time, you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's the me who has beheld the glory of God in the secret place. Who's allowed the loving eye of God to be on me. Who's allowed the power of the cross and the empty tomb to take hold of my spirit once again. Who's allowed myself to sing, even though I'm a terrible singer, about the goodness of God. Who's gotten my heart in humble submission. That guy treats people and reacts to his family and reacts to circumstances different than the guy who wakes up on default settings. And if you know Jesus, you're the same way. So I think I've finally been able to give language to what happens in the secret place with God because we do have so many people attached to the life of this church and we're all thinking about different things when we think about getting along with God. Some of y'all are thinking about quiet time. Some of y'all are immediately shamed, just going, yeah, I haven't done my Bible reading this week. Some of you think more prayer and you're like, yeah, I haven't, who, who knows the last time I really got serious about prayer and you do that in the car tomorrow. But at the end of the day, time alone with God can be summed up, if you put like a mission statement to it, in one phrase, and I want you to receive this. Time alone with God is about drawing strength from loving union with God. That's what a quiet time is. No, not, not, not that one. Can we go to the previous, uh, the previous sentence? It, it starts with drawing strength. Drawing strength from loving union with God. When you get alone with God, that's what you do. So I know so many people who are searching for that, 
what is the end game goal of being alone with God? It means to grab strength that becomes your source so that you live your life from what happens in that place and become an offering pouring out for other people. The strength of our relationships with God and our ability to imitate the cross will be directly related to whether or not we draw strength from the secret place. And the thing I want you to see about the cross today is that getting alone with God and getting your spirit at peace doesn't always equal tranquility. So there's people who think, I tried getting alone with God. I tried the prayer thing. I tried the consistent, I tried the Bible in a year thing. And it just became another task that I had. And my life was still hard and things were still complicated and it, it didn't make anything easier. Well, no joke. The purpose of it is to draw strength. What do you need strength for? Function. You know, the times where you need to draw the most strength physically is when your body is under the most duress. You don't need strength while you're sitting on the couch. You need strength when you're in the middle of a workout and breathing heavy and going, I don't know if I can keep going at this pace. You reach for strength. That's life. And the Christian life is dependent on whether or not you're still connected to the source, but the source is not checking the box that I have my time with the Lord. The source is whether or not I have drawn strength from what? Loving union. See, because this is not a religion or a transactional machine. This is a transformational relationship with a loving father. And so uh, being alone with God is about drawing strength from loving union with him. And the question of whether or not your, your life is dictated by hey, everything that's happening around me or peace from within me is are you getting to the secret place with God? Do you have a Gethsemane that sets you up for Calvary? Our expectation in imitating Jesus is not to join him in paying for our sins. No, he did that. He did that. But it is to join him in his suffering. How do I suffer well? How do I face this life well? You're going to need a source, and I'm going to need a source. That strength is called union with God, given to you by the cross, and it's your choice whether or not you want to step into it. So now we'll get into the questions. Because our, our, our team wants to get there a little faster than I do. And we'll ask some simple questions about how this impacts your life. But I truly believe that no sermon I am preaching this year will yield more fruit in your life if you put it into practice than the one that's hitting you right now. This, I, I've walked in this, I've seen this, and I've drawn strength, and I'm telling you, this is what you're missing. If you come to church every week and you go, it seems like they get it and I don't. It seems like somebody has something that I don't. This is what's happening. There's strength to be had in the secret place with God. And the deeper you go in loving union, the more you walk in power and strength by the Holy Spirit. Two questions. Number one is this. Do you know how to draw strength from loving union with God? Do you know how? The major gap in this room for actually putting this sermon into practice is that the majority of us who have no idea how to do what I am saying will never be humble or honest enough to say that out loud. Do you know how to do this? Like when, when I put that phrase, drawing strength from loving union up there, do you have the knowledge and the experience to go, I know how to do that. I, I know what that takes practically. Almost all of you who are Christians will pretend and nod your head going, yeah, I do. But in the actual practice of your life, I just want to get some of us to the space where we stop feeling the need to pretend anymore and go, I've actually been a Christian for a really long time and I have no idea how to do that. 
What does the church exist to do? The church exists to equip the saints for works of ministry. You are here and you're not alone because there are more wise and experienced believers around you who want to come alongside you and teach you how to do this. The more you keep trying to power through alone and figure this out, the more frustrated you're going to become. God rigged Christianity to be relational. You need to say something. And yes, we have systems and community groups and prayer teams. And there's all the ways that as a church, we're trying to equip you guys to walk deeper into this stuff. But we will never be able to cause the humility that's necessary for a human being to go, I want this bad enough and I don't know what I'm doing. Some of the most telling and embarrassing parts about this is that the people who need to come forward and say, I have no idea what I'm doing alone with God are some of the people who've been in church the longest. And at ACC, we have zero boastful spirits about so many people fleeing from traditional churches to be a part of this movement. There's no part of us that goes, y'all are irrelevant in the pews. We do something cooler. Everybody comes here. No. We're entrusted with something special. It's awesome to be a part of this. But one of the biggest hiccups and problems that I see as a pastor is our brothers and sisters in this room who grew up in those pews, and you didn't apply anything to your life. You, and it, it's not even necessarily your fault. You didn't know how. No one, no one was up there going, this is what it means. This is, we, were, we were just checking boxes and singing hymns and moving on to lunch. And I say that because I was there. Well, you're here now, but being here is not just about having a more engaging sermon for 40 minutes a week. Being here is about your spiritual growth, and it will require the humility to go, yeah, uh, I, uh, I've been in church my whole life, and I, I don't know what I'm supposed to do when I get alone with God. It's a relationship that's built over time. You've got to say something if you don't know how, but you also have to practice. Any new skill in life is cultivated by practice and time. So God, loving union, what's the best picture we have of loving union? Marriage. Okay, my relationship with my wife is cultivated by intentional time spent speaking and listening and sharing life in close physical proximity. Take that, apply that to God, and you're immediately like, yeah, it breaks down because he's not there physically. How do I do this? Although it's simpler to think about it from a marriage perspective of, I've got the person, I know I need to spend time, we're going to do something that we enjoy together and invest and focus deeply into our relationship with one another. Think that way, but united by the Spirit of God. What does it take to go deeper with God in the secret place? It takes a relational understanding that the thing God wants to do the most when you get alone with him is have you speak to him and him speak to you. You know the word prayer in the original language of the Bible means the sharing of wishes? It's like this, this communion with one another where God's wishes are becoming your wishes and where your anxieties and your fears are being shared with him. So there's a, there's a prayer dynamic, there's a scripture dynamic, there's a worship dynamic. There's so many things that happen in the secret place. But if you don't tell people that you don't know what you're doing and if you don't practice this and fail and get better over time, you will never grow into the type of person whose life is no longer defined by what's happening in the world around them, but is defined by what's happening in the word within them. You will never grow into that level of spiritual maturity. And so I just wanted to bring some of you to the end of yourself in this sermon to go, hey, do you really know how to do what we're talking about today? And if you don't, be honest and take ownership. I, this is a sad reality. The last thing I'll say about point number one, 
No one will take ownership over your spiritual health for you. You have to do this. This has to be you wanting this bad enough. That's number one. Number two, is your life oriented around drawing strength from loving union with God? And while the first one is really convicting for people who haven't discovered how yet, the second one should be convicting for everybody. Is your life oriented? I love that word. The word orientation means to revolve around. It's like something's at the center, just like the sun and, and the earth is just, is just spinning and going around it. I want to argue that your life is intended to be lived where union with God is in the middle and everything else revolves around it. If the goal of the Christian life is Jesus living in me, we have a long way to go. Y'all know I said that last week and I could just feel the pressure being on you. Like, what is spiritual maturity? It's getting to the place where if Jesus had full authority over your body, your life would look the way it looks. That's spiritual maturity. Jesus living in you. And if that's, if that's the bar, we got a long way to go. How do you get there? The first question becomes, is your life oriented around making that happen? If most of us got honest enough today, the answer would be no. My life's not oriented around that. That's important to me. But that's not like the main thing. You wanna know how I know it's not the main thing? Because when Tyler Miller preached a couple weeks ago and he said, hey, when your schedule gets pressed, what's the first thing that goes? Your time with the Lord and your church activities. Almost across the board. I'm stressed, ah, I can get rid of prayer, I can get rid of time in the word, and we can, we can you know, kind of slouch on this because we got the, hey, like, totally fair, we're all struggling together. Your life's not oriented around loving union with God. It's a part of your life, but it's not the thing. And we gotta get to a place where we go, I need this so bad that I'm willing to arrange my life where this is the most important endeavor I take on daily. If you're hearing vibes of church at home a couple weeks ago, you should be. This is the main thing God is showing me personally right now. The most important endeavor I have every day is getting my spirit in humble submission to God so that I have anything to offer the world around me. Loving union in the secret place. And the best thing you'll find, the last thing I'll say, is that this is God's vision for heaven very, very weird phrase Jesus said to that thief who repented and we did not have the time to spend on that little exchange, but oh, it's so good. Guy who his entire life, we have no evidence of anything spiritually deep happening, calls out for mercy as his life is about to end. What does the son of God have to say? Today, you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise is equaling what was said about Eden in Genesis. What is paradise? Walking unashamed with the God of the universe. And the walk never ends. Our times alone with God are our invitation to experience paradise now. So come and get it. Come and eat at the table. Come and get more of God. Come and take up your cross and come and no longer allow your life to be ruled by all that noise. My spirit is ruled by the voice of my father because I've been with him and he loves me and he's for me. 
How many of you just wanna do that right now? Let's do it. Let's take communion together. This is the focus of today, the body and the blood of Jesus. More than a cross to be admired, a model to be imitated. Reflect on these words that have been said. If you're not a believer in Jesus, you just wanna drop that under your seat and take this time to reflect on whether or not you want to have a relationship with God. I think that's good. Husbands, as always, pray over your wives. Take a second to just speak out into the life of your family. Maybe as a husband, you just wanna repent if this message is not true about you and your family, because that's what I'll be doing today as I pray over my wife at the next gathering. But let's spend this time, let's take communion together, and then we'll come back together in worship.